Notice anything different? That's right. No ad. Which means this space is available. So if you have a company or brand or product or anything really that you'd love to promote on 30 Pop, this is your chance. Just shoot me an email at the link in the show notes and I'll give you all the relevant details. Now, on to 30 Pop. Hello? Aaron, it's Luke. Luke who? Hey, question. Oh, hold on. Let me look at my uh, oh, let me look at my gosh. caller ID. Okay, okay. <laughs> oh, Luke Bronner. What's hey, up, man, man? How's it going? Hey, quick question for you. Yeah. Thirty years ago, you probably had a favorite toy, right? I would assume. Man, I wasn't even born thirty years okay, ago. Okay, so thirty I'm years ago, what of your possessions were you least <laughs> likely to share with other people? Oh man, that's a great question. Um, man, you got to give me a heads up. Okay, thirty years ago, I was thirty years ago. What year is that? Ninety. It's nineteen ninety-one. Mike, you've been on the show. You know what? I'm Sorry, gonna, dude, let me I'm... just say this. I'm going to call you next week before the episode with this exact same question. So give it some thought between now and then. And I will call you back. <laughs> okay, that's that sounds like a deal. Okay, see you later. Bye. From Mill U Media Group, this is 30 Pop. A weekly peek back at the music, movies, sports, fashion, politics, and news from 30 years ago. I'm your host, Luke Braun. This is season three, episode 22. The King of Basketball and the Prince of Thieves. Today we're looking back at the week that ended Saturday, June 15th, 1991. And we're back. Hello friends, welcome. It's time once again to forget the worries of our day, whatever they may be, and for just about 20 minutes or so, escape to a time when life looked a bit different. Perhaps better, or perhaps not, but definitely different. Whatever you've got going on in your life today, be it whiny kids, a demanding boss, a messy home, or the ongoing grind of combating systemic racism, misogyny, homophobia, religious supremacy, capitalism, and climate change, leave it behind for just a few and join me for another quick, emission-free trip down memory lane. I promise your problems will still be here when we get back. We do have much to cover today, but I don't imagine it'll take too terribly long. For starters, we had about a million new albums released this week in 1991, not all of which interested me then or even now, but which were certainly worth noting regardless. On June 11th, we saw the release of Funky Funky Wisdom, the fourth solo studio album from rap legend Cool Moe D, and his final album to be released on Jive Records. Sadly, it wasn't terribly successful commercially and received only mediocre reviews from critics. Rap music was changing quickly, splintering off into either the far more violent gangster rap of N.W.A. and the soon-to-follow Death Row Records, or the dance party pop rap of artists like MC Hammer, Vanilla Ice, and Another Bad Creation, leaving old-school MCs like Cool Moe forgotten somewhere in the middle. I personally have a lot of nostalgia around Cool Moe music, but even that comes from rediscovering his catalog in the late 90s, well after his career had ostensibly ended, and enjoying it, at least somewhat ironically, for its innocence and humor compared to the murder rap that was prominent at that point, more so than for any of the ways it had actually contributed to the evolution of the rap genre I loved so deeply. 
As it relates to the long-running lyrical beef with his rival LL Cool J, this album was, for all intents and purposes, the final nail in the coffin for Cool Mo D. Or maybe for LL. Honestly, I'm not sure. Both MCs walked away feeling like the victor. Cool Mo D having landed the final blow, but LL having set himself up for the longer, more successful career. While the rest of the rap world mostly lost interest in light of the much larger, much angrier, much more than just lyrical rivalries rising up between the East and West Coast's best MCs. However you look at it, this album marked the end of Cool Mo D's real-time relevance in pop culture. Thankfully, he is rightfully revered today as one of rap's pioneering voices. The next notable release from June 11th was the sixth studio album from Southern rock legends Leonard Skinner, their first in 14 years, when three of their members, including lead vocalist Ronnie Van Zant, were tragically killed in a plane crash just three days after the release of their fifth studio album, Street Survivors. The band called it quits, understandably, before reuniting in the late 80s with Van Zant's younger brother, Johnny, at the helm as lead vocalist. The album that released on June 11th, entitled 1991, was the first of many to feature Johnny as the band's frontman, a role he continues to fill to this day despite literally countless other lineup changes. 1991 was only the third studio album for Leonard Skinner to not be certified double platinum, only the second to not be certified platinum, and the first to not be certified gold, or certified anything, but not the last. In fact, none of the nine studio albums they've released since reforming have ever been certified, or come even remotely close to the commercial and critical success of their first five albums. I don't know Johnny Van Zant, but I'm familiar with the feeling of living in the shadow of an older brother, so I can, on some level, feel his pain in that. Another artist embraced and transcended the shadow cast over her this week in 1991, though, with the release of her 11th studio album. The seven times platinum-selling Unforgettable With Love by Natalie Cole, an album made up of covers of pop standards performed by her father, Nat King Cole, prior to his death in 1965. The album was massive. It won a number of Grammys and achieved platinum certification in six countries and gold in six more. We'll have much more to say about it over the next many months. Also on June 11th, soul singer-songwriter and eventual country artist Aaron Neville released his platinum-selling sophomore album, Warm Your Heart, produced by his friend and regular collaborator, the first lady of rock, Linda Ronstadt. I wasn't able to find out much about this album beyond that. He made it, it was successful, he has a face tattoo and a distinct voice, and last month at the age of 80, he finally announced his official retirement from touring, although he apparently still plans to perform occasionally and record and release albums. That's it. I hope your heart is warmed. Finally, on June 13th, 1991, we saw the release of Cher's gold-selling 20th studio album, Love Hurts. This was not an especially successful album for Cher, at least not in the U.S. European fans loved it, but she was already nearly three full decades into being a major pop music icon and star of the silver screen. So regardless of how this particular album was received by fans, it's worth mentioning. The number one album in the country this week in 1991 for the second straight week was Paula Abdul's sophomore release, Spellbound. And the lead single from that album, Rush Rush, which I discussed a bit last week, was also the new number one song on the Billboard Hot 100 chart for the first of five straight weeks. Rap newcomer Yo-Yo was, once again, for the fourth and final week, at the top of the hot rap chart with her song, You Can't Play With My Yo-Yo. But we had a new number one song on the hot R&B and hip-hop chart with Luther Vandross's confusingly titled 
power of love, love power. The reason for the odd, redundant title of this song is that it's actually a medley of two songs, The Power of Love, written by Vandross and Company, and Love Power, by the 1968 R&B one-hit wonders, The Sand Pebbles. still seems a little weird to me, but Luther Vandross being the definitive voice of the genre can pretty much get away with anything he wants. So, power of love, love power it is. The number one song on the hot country chart for just this one week in 1991 was Joe Diffie's If the Devil Danced in Empty Pockets. If the devil danced in empty pockets, he'd have a ball in mind. With a nine-foot grand, a ten-piece band, and a twelve-girl chorus line. I'd raise some loot in a three-piece suit, give him one dance for a dime. If the devil danced in empty pockets, he'd have a ball in mind. This was the third single off Diffie's debut album, A Thousand Winding Roads, and although it only saw the top spot for a single week, it spent a respectable 22 weeks on the chart altogether. It was his second of five career number ones. Sadly, in March of 2020, Diffie died unexpectedly at the age of 61 due to complications from COVID-19. In sports news this week in 1991, the greatest basketball player who has ever played or will ever play the game, Michael Jordan, led his Chicago Bulls to their first championship in a hard-fought five-game series against Magic Johnson and the Los Angeles Lakers. Jordan was voted the finals MVP, obviously, and the Bulls dynasty was officially underway. While I appreciate the NBA of the 80s, the aughts, the teens, and today, I will forever consider the 90s to be the golden age of professional basketball. Players were still tough, they had finesse, they had style, they had shorts that were longer than boxers, and they didn't fake an injury every time a defender grazed their jersey. The Bulls reigned supreme, and Jordan was on top of the world. He transcended the sport, or all sports, and became a global cultural icon. He made competitors look silly on the court. And admirers too, for that matter, as every kid I knew began sticking their tongue out when they played basketball or did homework, as though that were the secret to his success. As I've said before, and will likely say again, all due respect to LeBron, Kobe, KD, and Kawhi, Jordan was the greatest of all time. I will not be persuaded otherwise. So, we'll move on. In television, on June 10th, 1991, we saw the original series finale of what has since become a major cult classic, the David Lynch mystery horror drama, Twin Peaks. Full disclosure, I know far, far, far too little about this show. All I knew as a kid is that it was creepy and weird and not my thing. When it was revived in 2017, it was still only peripherally on my radar, but I have a feeling now that I might like it. Similar to X-Files, which I didn't discover until I was into my 30s. And despite every preconceived notion I had about it, I thoroughly enjoyed the season or two I saw. So, here's my commitment to you. 
as I'm confident there are some Twin Peaks superfans out there. Rather than simply Googling and IMDBing a bunch of interesting trivia about this show and sharing it here like I have any idea what I'm talking about, I will commit to giving this series a proper chance, starting with Season 1, Episode 1, and I'll report back on it as soon as possible. If I get hooked, I'll join you in your super fandom. If I don't, you'll know I at least gave it an honest chance, and I'll Google and IMDB a bunch of interesting trivia about the show and share it here like I have some idea what I'm talking about. Deal? Deal. Now, let's get to the moment I've been waiting for. New in theaters this week in 1991, and number one at the box office its opening weekend, Kevin Costner, Morgan Freeman, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio, Alan Rickman, and Christian Slater in the truly wonderful Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. A time of war. A time of homecoming. A time of tyrants. A time when the only way to uphold justice was to break the law. the people the courage to fight. The one man who stood for freedom became a legend. At the risk of way overusing this phrase, sincerely, there are no words to describe the deep, deep love I felt and feel for this movie. While I agree with Mel Brooks' assessment in his 1993 spoof film, Robin Hood Men in Tights, that a good Robin of Loxley should at least have a British accent, I maintain that Kevin Costner was a perfect Robin. The best Robin in cinematic history, in fact. You could even perhaps say he was the Michael Jordan of Robin Hoods even without a consistent, discernible British accent. And to extend the metaphor, Morgan Freeman was a perfect Pippin to Costner's Jordan. And Alan Rickman, the ultimate rival, he would be to Costner what Isaiah Thomas was to Jordan. Or maybe Karl Malone. I don't know, I'm getting kind of lost in my own illustration. All I know is this movie was perfect, and I was so proud to have owned it on VHS. Some interesting trivia. Carrie Elwes of The Princess Bride fame was actually offered the role of Robin Hood, but turned it down because he thought the plot was too contrived. Thankfully, he accepted the role two years later in the aforementioned Mel Brooks spoof, making him the Kobe Bryant of Robin Hoods. Interestingly, his Princess Bride counterpart, Robin Wright, was the original choice for the role of Maid Marian, but had to drop out just before shooting when she learned that she was pregnant with her first child. The role of Will Scarlet, played by Christian Slater, was, like so many roles in those days, offered to and turned down by Johnny Depp. I rewatched this movie this week for the first time in many, many years, probably at least two decades, but I didn't watch the theatrical cut. Instead, I watched the special extended version and saw for the first time a deleted scene in which it's revealed that the creepy witch lady who lives in Nottingham's dungeon and tells his fortune throughout the movie is his mom. 
Both the sheriff and I were completely shocked to learn that juicy little bit of gossip. But extended version or not, this movie is still so, so good. It was produced on a budget of approximately $48 million, and it made back nearly $26 million its opening weekend. All in, to date, this movie has grossed nearly $400 million and helped to make Kevin Costner a very, very rich man. Plenty more to say about it in the coming weeks. But for now, I'm going to wrap this episode up. With tremendous gratitude for your listening ears, I will leave you with the wisdom of Robin's devoted companion and protector, Azim. Remember, friends, there are no perfect men in the world, only perfect intentions. 30 Pop is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Braun. Our artwork is by the amazing Heather Hale. To check out more shows from Mill U Media Group, visit millumedia.com, which is linked in the show notes for this episode. And if you have a story from 30 years ago that you want to share, leave a message on the answering machine at 30pop.com. <laughs>